Good morning. Welcome to worship this morning. For a scripture this morning, uh, I was asked to read Genesis chapter 24. I'll just start at the first verse. And Abraham was old and well stricken in age. And the Lord had blessed Abraham in all things. Abraham said unto his eldest servant of his house that ruled over all that he had, Put, I pray thee, thy hand under my thigh, and I will make thee swear by the Lord and the God of heaven and the God of the earth that thou shalt not take a wife unto my son of the daughters of the Canaanites among whom I dwell. But thou shalt go into my country, to my kindred, take a wife unto my son Isaac. And the servant said unto him, Peradventure the woman will not be willing to follow me into this land. Must I needs bring thy son again unto the land from whence thou camest? And Abraham said unto him, Beware that, that, thou, that thou bring not my son thither again. And the Lord God of heaven, which took me from the, my father's house and from the land, from the land of my kindred, and which spake unto me, and which swear unto me, saying, Unto thy seed will I give this land. He shall send his angel before thee, and shall take a wife unto my son from thence. And the woman shall not be willing to follow thee, then thou shalt be clear from this my, my oath. Only bring not, that, bring not my son thither again. And the servant put his hand under the thigh of Abraham his master, and swear to him concerning that matter. And the servant took ten camels of the camels of his master and departed from all, for all the goods of his master were in his hand. And he arose and went to Mesopotamia under the city of Nahor. And he made his camels to kneel down without the city by the well of water at the time of the evening, even the time that the women go out to draw water. And he said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, I pray thee, send me good speed this day and show kindness unto the, my master Abraham. Behold, I stand here by the well of water and the daughters of the men of the city come to draw water and let it come to pass that the damsel who, whom I shall say, to whom I shall say, let down thy pitcher, I pray thee, that I may drink. And she shall, she shall say, drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. Let the same be she that, that thou shalt, that thou hast appointed for thy servant Isaac. And thereby shall I know that thou hast showed kindness unto my master. And it came to pass before he had done, he had done speaking, that behold, Rebekah came out, who was born of Bethuel, son of Milcah, son of Nahor, wife of Nahor, Abraham's brother, with her pitcher upon her shoulder. And the damsel was very fair to look upon, and a virgin, neither had any man known her. And she went down to the well, and filled her pitcher, and came up. And the servant ran to meet her and said, Let me, I pray thee, drink a little water from thy pit pitcher. And she said, Drink, my lord. And she hasted and let down her pitcher upon her hand and gave him a drink. And when she had done giving him a drink, she said, I will draw water for your camels also until they have, been, until they have done drinking. And she hasted and emptied her pitcher upon the trough and the, ran again to the well to draw water and drew for all her camels, all his, all his camels. And the man wondered at her, held his peace, to wit whether the Lord had made his journey prosperous or not. 
And it came to pass, as the camels had done drinking, that the man took a golden earring of half a shekel weight and two bracelets for her hands of ten shekels weight of gold, and said, Whose daughter art thou? Tell me, I pray thee, is there room in thy father's house for us to lodge in? And she said unto him, I'm the daughter of Bethuel, son of Milcah, which she said, which she bare unto Nahor. She said, Moreover unto him, We have both straw and provender enough and room to lodge in. And the man bowed down his head and said, and worshipped the Lord. And he said, Blessed be the Lord God of my master Abraham, who hath not left destitute my master of his mercy and his truth. I being in the way, the Lord led me to the house of my master's brethren, and the damsel ran and told them of her house, of her mother's house, these things. And Rebekah had a brother, and his name was Laban. And Laban ran unto the man, unto the well. And it came to pass, when he saw the earrings and bracelets upon his sister's hands, and when he heard the words of Rebekah, his sister, saying, Thus spake the man unto me, that he came unto the man, and behold, that, that he came unto the man, behold, he stood by the camels at the well. And he said, Come in, thou blessed of the Lord, wherefore standest thou without? For I have prepared the house and room for the camels. And the man came into the house, and he ungirded his camels, and gave straw and provender for the camels, and water to wash his feet. And the, men, the men's feet were and the men's feet were, that were with him. And there was set meat before him to eat. But he said, I will not eat until I have told mine errand. And he said, Speak on. And he said, I am Abraham's servant, and the Lord hath blessed my master greatly, and he hath become great, and he hath given him flocks and herds and silver and gold, manservants and maidservants and camels and asses. And Sarah, my master's wife, bare a son to my master when she was old, and unto him hath he given all that he hath. My master made me swear, saying, Thou shalt not take a wife this, to my son of the daughters of the Canaanites, in, who, in whose land I dwell. But thou shalt go to my father's house, to my kindred, and take a wife unto my, unto my son. And I said unto my master, Peradventure the woman will not follow me. And he said unto me, Lord, before whom I walk, will send his angel with thee, and prosper thy way. And thou shalt take a wife for my son of my kindred and of my father's house. Then shalt thou be clear from this my oath when thou comest to thy kindred. And if they give not thee one, then thou shalt be clear from from my oath. And I came this day unto the well and said, O Lord God of my master Abraham, if now thou do prosper my way which I go, behold, I stand by the well of water. And it shall come to pass that when the virgin cometh forth to draw water, and I say to her, Give me, I pray thee, a little water from thy pitcher to drink. And And she say to me, Both drink thou, and I will also draw for thy camels. Let the same be the woman whom the Lord hath appointed out for my master's son. And before and before I had done speaking in mine heart, behold, Rebekah came forth with her pitcher on her shoulder, and she went down unto the well, drew water, and said, And I said unto her, Let me drink, I pray thee. And she made haste and let down her pitcher from her shoulder and said, Drink, and I will give thy camels drink also. So I drank, and she made the camels drink also. And I asked her and said, Whose daughter art thou? And she said, The daughter of Bethuel, Nahor's son, whom Milcah bare unto him. And I will put the earring upon her face 
and I put the earring upon her face and the bracelets upon her hands. And I bowed down my head and worshiped the Lord. Bless the Lord God of my master Abraham, which he, which had led me in the right way to take my master's brother's daughter unto his son. And now, if you will deal kindly and truly with my master, tell, tell me, and if not, tell me that I may turn to the right hand or to the left. Then Laban and Bethuel answered and said, The thing proceeding from the Lord, we cannot speak unto thee bad or good. Behold, Rebekah is before thee, take her and go. Let her be thy master's son's wife, as the Lord has spoken. And it came to pass that when Abraham, Abraham's servant heard these words, their words, he worshiped the Lord, bowing himself to the earth. And the servant brought forth jewels of silver and jewels of gold and raiment and gave them to Rebekah. He gave also to her brother and her mother precious things. And they did eat and drink. He and the men that were with him tarried all night, rose up in the morning, and he said, Send me away unto my master. And her brother and her mother said, Let the damsel abide with us a few days, at, le at the least ten, and after that she shall go. And he said unto them, Hinder me not, seeing the Lord hath prospered my way, and send me away that I may go to my master. And they said, we shall call a damsel and inquire at her mouth. And they called Rebekah and said unto her, Wilt thou go with this man? She said, I will go. And they sent away Rebekah, their sister, and her nurse, and Abraham's servant, and his men. And they blessed Rebekah and said unto her, Thou art our sister, be thou the mother of thousands of millions, and let thy seed possess the gate of those which hate them. And Rebekah rose and her damsels, and they rode upon the camels and followed the man. And the servant took Rebekah and went his way. And Isaac came from the way of the well, Leheroi, and he, for he dwelt in the south country. And Isaac went out to meditate in the field at the eventide. And he lifted up his eyes and saw, and behold, camels were coming. And Rebekah lifted up her eyes and when she saw Isaac, she lighted off the camel, for she had said unto the servant, What man is this that walketh in the field to meet us? And the servant said, It is my master. Before, Therefore she took a veil and covered herself. And the servant told Isaac all the things that he had done. And Isaac brought her unto his mother, Sarah's tent, and took Rebekah, and she became his wife. He loved her, and Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. Brother Bart's going to get into uh, more expounding on that, so I'll leave that for him. But uh, if we could just pray,
Good morning. I greet you in the name of our precious, loving Savior, Jesus Christ, and welcome each one to worship service this morning. I especially want to welcome you visitors. I see several visitors here this morning. Welcome as we all worship God together this morning. So I've been studying and meditating on the subject of the Christian home uh, for the last few months, and I've found it impossible to try to condense that subject into one sermon. So I guess you call it a series. I don't know. This is the second attempt uh, on related subjects to the home. You know with me that the subject of the Christian home is, is huge and can be broad. Um, many subtopics. And so this morning, I'm going to attempt to start in the beginning stages. The last message we talked out of Genesis chapter 2, uh, giving the overall origin of marriage and the home as God created marriage, created the home with a purpose. And that purpose is twofold, I believe, through Scripture. The first is uh, to reproduce and to uh, promulgate the human race all through the ages. Uh, the second aspect of the purpose of the family and home that we find in Scripture is out of family. God uses family to teach our children His ways. I believe that our children, our home setting, becomes our first point of mission. I believe that very strong. But then out of that comes the uh, adults and families teaching God's will and his way in our communities, those that we come in contact with, and out into the mission field. God did not create you all alone on an island by yourself, but he brought you into the world through birth into the Christian family, and he, brought, and he did that with purpose. And as I stated last time, and I'll, I'll say again, some of you will never marry. And that's okay. And if that is your lot, then you, I say you still have a purpose in the setting of family. You are still a very vital part of the family that you were born into. And even later, as an aunt and uncle, um, you are a very vital part of this thing called family and home. So this morning, um, I'm going to, I'm, I told Lisa before I stood up, I'm nervous as a house cat because I'm speaking on a subject that I've never attempted to talk on publicly. I've, I've had several wedding ceremonies. I've spoke on uh, the Christian home before throughout time in sermons. This morning I'm going to attempt to talk specifically on uh, the early stage, dating, the engagement period, and probably not due to time, get into the wedding. And so as you can tell, I'm probably nervous. I don't really know where to begin. Um, 
In some ways, I dedicate this sermon to you young people. Uh, some of you are here that are dating. I know some here that are actually engaged to be married. Uh, so I dedicate this sermon to you, but really, I give this sermon to all of us because I, I believe, and I know you do too, but you see the Christian home, in our, uh, especially in our nation, but around the world, declining. I really believe that this needs the attention of the church and even the morals and standards of, of Christian dating or courtship has declined. And so this message is not just to you young people who either desire to be dating or are, are finding your lot in, in courtship or, or engagement, whatever, but really us as young families, you as young families, us as grandparents, this needs our attention. We need to be teaching in our homes these godly principles and standards even before our children come to the dating age. And so some of what I'm going to speak about this morning makes me nervous, and I know as young parents it makes you nervous to discuss these things, but I believe that it really needs our attention in these last days more than ever. I know that most young men and women desire to, especially if, if they're Christians, have a strong desire to have a happy family, uh, a godly home, a model home. But it seems like not as many participate in the sacrifice that it takes to have the same. And by sacrifice, I mean it must start with dying to oneself. And this is a principle not only in dating, but all through the married life. Dying to one's selfishness, pride, arrogance, and egos. Philippians chapter 2 says this is a godly principle that applies to really every relationship, but we are called to esteem others better than yourself. And I cannot emphasize this enough. I think I've mentioned it in every wedding ceremony that I've given, participated in. Esteem others better than yourself. It is... Uh, applicable and the beginning of every relationship and it must be practiced throughout the relationship. The relationships between husbands and wives, parents and children, grandparents, every relationship within the family, but again it starts even in the dating relationship. Esteem others better than yourself. This relationship must be based on a we relationship not, not a me relationship. Esteeming others is a godly principle, is a key to every successful relationship. Starts with dating, choosing a spouse, the starting of a home must be built on the foundation of godly principles. And I encourage uh, any of you that are dating 
to take that to heart because even a dating relationship must be built on godly principles. It's not really all about fun and games. I remember when I was a boy, we would go to Grandpa's house and watch. My mom didn't really like this, but sometimes we would watch the dating game on his television. I'm here to tell you this morning, dating is not a game. It is enjoyable. It can be fun. I'm not taking the fun and the excitement out of that relationship, but it is much, much more than a game. So in the beginning, in the beginning, you, um, a young man begins to take notice of a girl. And I don't know if I'm going to say all this right or not, because really there's no two relationships, I think, among all of us that are married that began the same way and was really just cookie cutter. But a young man begins to take notice of a girl or vice versa. They begin to, um, the young man, for example, may, may start noticing how she responds and, and reacts in a group setting with others. Pretty soon he's starting to notice how she is particularly responding to him and vice versa. And so pretty soon a connection is made and this young man gets the courage to ask her. And again, this first question is never cookie cutter. I know with me, I, I remember rehearsing that question and then it don't come out the way that you rehearsed it. The setting is always different. <clears throat> but little by little, the connection is made uh, the, the young man asks her, and there's really a lot of different emotions that's involved. And I say different because they really are different. And because typically we're younger, now some, some are beginning to date at an older age, and maybe they have their emotions under control. But I know as a, as a young person, it's very emotional, and what we don't always realize is God made male and female different. And so the emotions are completely different between the young man and the young woman. And I can't testify, of course, for the young woman because I still don't understand all the emotions that's involved with a woman. I remember uh, 15, 20 years ago, I went to a men's seminar and there was a Christian author there, and he had a book that caught my attention, a thin little book, I still have it, and it's titled um, Knowing the Mind of a Woman. And I bought it, and I scanned through it, and I still don't really understand what it was saying. Emotions are different. In fact, we're created different. Obviously, our physical bodies are different between male and female, and we all recognize that. 
our minds mentally, we think differently at times. And we can't really change that. I'm not trying to change that, but it is good that we recognize it. And then also emotions are differently. The way that we react or respond to each other or to situations can be much different between male and female. And so at the time of, say, the first date, the emotions are high and the emotions are possibly quite different between the young man and the young woman. And I'm kind of getting lost in my notes and I wanted to be very careful to go with what I had premeditated because I don't want to say the wrong thing. Um, but there are at times different, not only different emotions, but also different personalities, uh, difference in how serious or how fast this relationship is growing. And I realize that that can be different between the young man or the young woman and it can be hard at times. Uh, there's, there's difference in over the, the goals and expectations. And all of this is possibly different between the young man and young woman, but also different in every relationship. And when the dating is going good, it's fun. It's exciting. In fact, hardly anything better. Life has gone by and we don't even know it because it's just as good as it gets. But when it goes hard and the relationship begins to struggle, it's probably one of the hardest times in a young person's life. And <clears throat> um, and sometimes you feel all alone because you can talk to your parents, you can talk to close friends, but only you really know just how that is going and what you're feeling. It's important that in these times that you're open with each other to be able to discuss similarities and also discuss differences. One of the deceiving parts about Dating, and maybe you use the word courtship. I wanted to say this up front. I know some of you young people call it a thing. To me, it's too important just to call it a thing. You know, did you hear there a thing? Well, call it what you want. I'm going to call it dating, okay, because I came out of the 70s. But um, when, when you're going through this, it's so easy to just focus on your similarities and not be willing to discuss your differences. And it's kind of a deception because all along you're thinking, hey, this is going good, this is going good, and then you hit a red flag. And sometimes if you're not open to discuss it, it's hard to get through that and it's easier just to bury it. And those are the things we don't want to resurface after marriage. Be willing to discuss, be open to discuss. And I speak especially to young men or to us parents to teach our young men because it's harder for a man possibly to discuss things than it is a woman. But what is really important about the dating period, and again, I can't 
I can't give you all the wherefores and how-tos, and I, I don't even want to try that. But what, what is really, to me, the most practical and most important part of the dating period is just simply to get to know each other. This is where people fail. It's all fun and games. It's all uh, just a glorious time. And then marriage comes and they don't really know each other. And so some, some dating periods, I mean, some people accomplish that in a matter of a few months. Lisa and I really didn't date real long compared to, to some of you, and we knew. Sometimes it takes a few years. My encouragement to you that are in that uh, era right now, that age group, and you young families can teach your children this, to take whatever time is needed, be it short, be it long, but make sure you know each other. Marriage is a responsibility. And it's okay to have doubts about the responsibility of marriage. Now listen closely because there, I see this as a difference. It's okay to have doubts about the responsibility of marriage. At 20 years old, I was shaking in my shoes to think that I could support my wife, maybe a family, making four and a quarter an hour. I didn't know how to do it. So it's okay to, to, be, to have doubts concerning the responsibility and my own capabilities. But I'm going to say we should not have doubts about the person. And maybe I'm too black and white, but I think that's where people go wrong, is they don't really know the person. They have doubts about the person, but they continue on in the relationship and possibly on into marriage. If you have doubts about the person, it doesn't mean you break up but it means you take your time until you have most all of your questions answered concerning that person. When Lisa and I were engaged, she had a friend, I think that she had worked with, that was also engaged, and she kept mentioning to Lisa at work, well, I just have a lot of doubts. I don't really feel like I know him. How can you be so sure? that Bart is your forever man. And Lisa would try to encourage her. They dated for a while, they were engaged for a while, and they were married, but it ended rapidly in divorce. They didn't really know each other. And to me, that's what dating is about. It's a time period that God gives us, and you can go all, all we can refer back to Genesis chapter 24, referred to often as the first love story, but God gives us this time period, whether it be short, whether it be long, that we get to know each other. And our doubts towards each other should, in most part, be removed. Think about um, some of these things. Our relationship obviously should not be built on 
things like looks or, um, well, I, I've heard some people say, well, he just makes me so happy. Uh, he makes me laugh all the time. I just feel so good when I'm around him. Well, you know where that's leading. That's totally a, an emotional relationship. And it's great to have fun. It's great to laugh. And Lisa and I still have them kind of times. But a relationship is not built on that alone. Consider some of these things to discuss during the dating period and to be at one with fundamental spiritual beliefs. Look for a person that has a heart for prayer, a heart for God, a person that is open to discuss things, both similarities and differences. Is he or she honest? Honest with me, honest with others? What do they do in their idle time? Do they have a heart for others versus selfishness? Do, do, the, do our discussions usually center around them and their interest and themselves? Or is it more about we and us and others? How do they treat others? How do they speak about others? How do they speak about their parents? How do they speak about their elderly grandparents? And this is a favorite one of Lisa's. How do they treat their pets? And that may seem frivolous, but you get a guy stuffing cats in mailboxes and shooting their heads off and things like that, it does speak a little bit about their character, right? Lisa even has scripture for that one. <laughs> the list could go mile, a mile long, but what I'm saying is during the dating relationship and especially as the couple moves more into the engagement period, look for things of character, deep character, and, and spiritual commitment, and spiritual beliefs. Look for those things and be at one with those because it is, it is a, a deception, I believe, a tool of Satan to think that I'm going to overlook that. Now, we do have to overlook faults. We'll never get them to be like me. That's not the point. But too many times we overlook the important things during the dating period. We get into marriage thinking we're going to fix them and we're going to change that person. And typically that does not happen. I'm not here to paint a doom and gloom over this whole thing of home and marriage because I personally believe there's hope. I personally believe that we can have a good godly family and a good godly home. And I believe that the Christian home and family is the greatest testimony out there in the world today. And it can happen. But we all know statistics. And I think one of the main reasons why the statistics are so bad is because during the dating period, we get things all twisted up. Again, get to know each other. Don't commit to marriage until your questions are answered concerning the person.
There's another topic that I just feel pressed to, to speak about, and uh, we're running out of time. This is hard for me to speak about publicly, but I feel I, I have to, I must, and we'll try to keep it to a public setting. Turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 34. As you're turning there, um, another point that I intended to make earlier is um, the word infatuation. And some of you younger ones maybe don't know what that means, but it, I looked up a definition. It means an intense but short-lived feeling of passion and admiration for someone or something. As a, date, as a dating relationship first unfolds, oftentimes uh, infatuation is what catches our eye. It's where we have a lot of fun. There's a lot of enjoyment in the relationship. And quite frankly, he can do nothing wrong. Everything is just perfect. And he is just so great. And she is fabulous. I mean, well, I'm telling everybody that she, there is just nobody like her. That's infatuation, and it, in a sense, that's good in, the, in its beginning stages. I just wanted to point out that a relationship, as it grows deeper, cannot be built on infatuation alone. That is a, a, a shallow, short-lived emotion. Now, I would, I would conclude, based on experience, Lisa and I still have some of that. Praise God. But our relationship is not built on infatuation alone. Just be careful of that short-lived emotion. Now, Genesis, Genesis chapter 34, another lengthy chapter that I cannot go clear through, but just in summary, it is dealing with premarital sex. That probably got your attention. But I have to speak about it concerning the dating period and the engagement period. Here in this chapter, um, Shechem, which is a son of Hamor, and Dinah, which is actually a granddaughter, I believe, of Abraham himself, daughter of Jacob, uh, verse 2, verse 3, they went to bed together, and uh, this is a very detailed story of this. I do not picture this setting as like a harlot situation. It was more of a couple that uh, they liked each other, and, and it happened, okay? At verse 3, it, he poured on the charm. You can read that verse, and it was like he just poured on the charm. And I'm going to say, young women, be very careful of men. Young, young men are gifted this way, to pour on the charm. And next thing you know, they may have you where you don't want to be. Verse 5 is a word defiled. That word defiled means to make foul, rotten, in an immoral sense, to pollute the body, to make self utterly unclean. 
What I want to point out here primarily in this passage is in these times, premarital sex was totally unacceptable. It was unacceptable by parents, by society, and, and obviously by God himself. You compare that with our society today where it has become the normal. And I, I'm sorry to speak about it in public service, but we've come to a time, church, where if we don't stand against it, I mean, you look at, it's even, it's even into the church. And this twisted thinking of even among priests and pastors and preachers and the people to where it just becomes the norm. I think it's one of the downfalls of home and marriage. In this chapter, it was not acceptable. In the word of God, it is not acceptable. And it was so extreme here that just to recap real quickly, um, so her family was, was totally distraught over this thing. And they bring the couple to the family and obviously dad is upset, but even her brothers were very upset and they wanted to kill Shechem's family because of this. It's how bad it was. And today it's just like a casual thing. Then they come up with this uh, twisted spiritual idea, okay, so they're Jewish, so they tell Shechem's family, well, I'll tell you what, if, if you become circumcised and your family, in fact, if your whole community becomes proselytes and comes into our Jewish way of thinking and you're all circumcised, then we'll let this thing go. I can't imagine it, but they did. Shechem's family became circumcised. And it says his, the whole community became circumcised. But her brothers thought about it, and they still didn't like it. They knew it was wrong. And it says while the men were still sore, just a few days after this major mass circumcision, her brothers went out and they murdered Shechem, they murdered his dad, they murdered his family, they murdered the community. All of these people died, this is my point, this is the point of this chapter, all of the people died because of few moments of premarital sex. It's never been excusable by God. It still isn't today. And our, our society has whitewashed it. You will, you will have a much deeper marriage relationship if you can harness that drive within you. It is a God-given drive. God has put it within us. And we start recognizing that even as young boys and girls. But God wants us to harness that and he will help us harness it until after marriage and then it can be a beautiful and pleasure thing 
There's two types of fornication in the Bible. One is spiritual fornication, referred to often throughout Scripture. Spiritual fornication is when a believer who has espoused themselves to Jesus Christ, okay, married in the future to Jesus Christ, but they have turned from him and his love and has loved another, an idol, something greater than their love for Christ, spiritual fornication. When that happens, the heart of Jesus bleeds, and the Father God hates it with a passion. Spiritual fornication is, is a ticket to a burning eternal hell. Spiritual fornication can be repented of. And we can brought back, be brought back in to the loving, saving relationship of Jesus Christ. But it must be repented of and it must stop. Not just repented of and keep on going. The other aspect of fornication in the scripture is this thing of physical fornication and it is just as serious different there's a typology there but it's just as serious and when we're participating in that I believe the heart of Jesus is bleeding just the same and Father God hates it hates it with a passion and just like with spiritual fornication, physical fornication can be repented of, and it needs to stop. And God will love you just the same. I'm not pointing my fingers at anyone in this congregation this morning as I speak about that subject. I'm encouraging young families to teach your children before the age that you think they need to be taught it. Don't let them experiment and play around with fire in areas where you, have, where you don't even know. Teach them these things because to me, God has drawn a line. The problem is we get to playing around and fooling around and touching in areas we should not be touching and the line moves. Our emotions go up, our blood starts pumping, the line moves. Pretty soon we don't know where the line's at. Teach your children well to have standards before they get into the dating period. Because again, God has given us this desire and he has intended it for good. He has intended it for after marriage. Genesis chapter 24, the text that was read. I'll not take the time to go through that in its entirety. But really, um, 
I, I realize that the culture is much different than it was a few thousand years ago. And so I'm not recommending that we hire a servant to go out and find um, a, a wife for our sons. But it is uh, many of God's principles does not change. And in this chapter, there's a lot of godly principles that we can still take heart today. Uh, Abraham blessed, the father gave blessing. Um, and as, as he sent his servant out, it, it's uh, one thing that stood out to me was the servant was looking for a heart of a servant. So the Bible says that Re Rebecca was very, very pretty, very, very fair to look upon. But the servant didn't know that ahead of time, so he was not seeking a, a bride for Isaac based on her looks. What he was looking for was the heart of a servant. And he said, I'm going to look for that person that when I ask her to give me a drink, she willingly does it. But also, she voluntarily asked if she could give drink to his camels, the heart of a servant. I think the heart of a servant makes the best wives, makes the best husbands. And as we are dating and moving into engagement, let's look, be looking and teaching our children to look for a heart of a servant. He had questions, but he quietly waited on his answers. And that's hard as a young man or young woman to just be waiting and waiting uh, to be sure. Then he, he, he asked her to drink, and of course she gave to him and then asked if she could also give drink to his camels. He presented gifts to her. They talked about their family. She invited this uh, Isaac's servant back to her house to meet the family. Uh, many of these things we still practice today in a little different way. Isaac's servant, verse 26, he bowed to worship the Lord. He mentions this two or three times in this chapter. He bowed to give God all the glory. You might ask yourself if you're in the middle of a relationship, is this relationship enhancing my worship to God or is it hurting it, harming it in any way? Maybe another uh, a clue. Verse 27, he mentions it other places. Uh, again, I, what I see as one of the prime points in this story is the sovereignty of God. In verse 27, he says, the Lord led me here. God gives us a lot of choices to make, and especially as we go through the dating period and engagement. And these are not easy choices that God has placed us with that responsibility. But I believe in the sovereignty of God. And I, I still, I look back at when I was that age, and I didn't date a lot of girls, but it was, it was kind of like, now that I look back on it, maybe more than I saw then, how God just led me to the right one. It wasn't all in the choices that I made. 
And somehow God's sovereignty and, and the responsibility of our choices comes together. And ultimately, it's not a 50-50. Ultimately, it's his plan. And he led me to the woman that I love. He saw that in this chapter. He, just, he says it several times, the Lord led me here. You can trust God. I encourage you young people, I encourage us to teach our children, learn to make the right choices, but have a heart for prayer. Learn to follow his direction. I have all confidence that God will lead you there. God will lead you. If he, if he steers you away from a relationship, trust God. If he steers you towards someone, trust God. Take your time, make the right decisions, but trust God and his sovereignty. A lot more could be said about this chapter. Her family blessed her, but ultimately, verse 57, 58, ultimately it was her choice. So all of this looks a little different to us in this culture, but ultimately they ask her if she would go with Isaac's servant, and she did. They get back to Isaac's place, verse 63. I find this uh, kind of humorous in a way. Isaac had to think about it. So all of this goes on. He gets the right wife, brings her back, and it says Isaac went out and meditated. And I can relate with that. Verse 65, she veiled herself in subjection to God's order of headship. Again, some say, well, that was just a custom back then. I say there was reason for that custom. She veiled herself. She obeyed God. Isaac, verse 67, Isaac took her in to be his wife, and he loved her. Remember this whole this whole thing, this whole idea of God's purpose for home and family is to be a living, practical, motion picture of God's love for his people. And that is expressed in a practical way through our marriages and through our families. Ephesians 5. And that may be the next message more on the wedding and the marriage. But we've considered today the initial beginning stages, dating, the engagement, and looking forward to the wedding. And it's, a, it's this perfect picture of Christ. So not only is marriage a picture of Christ and his love towards his church, but even, as I thought about it, even the dating and the espousal. Right now, it's a picture of your current relationship as a believer with Christ, your Savior and lover. Jesus is the bridegroom. We are the bride. Our relationship is growing fonder and fonder and fonder and deeper and deeper with him. Most of us have come to the point where we can't live without him. We love him. He loved us so that he gave his life for us. We are living our life in anticipation of this wedding. If we listen closely, the music is playing softly. We, his bride, 
are dressed in his white righteousness. And we're just about to round the corner and head up the aisle and embrace him forever. And if you're a believer in Christ, you can relate with my emotions. You love him. And you can't wait for the wedding. But right now, we're just engaged. And I say just. In Jewish culture, engaged was really the same as being married. They just didn't live together yet. In our culture, it's the other way around, sad to say. But to me, I'm engaged to my lover, Jesus Christ, and that is just as sure as if it's already happened. So God bless you as you anticipate your wedding day. Let's have a song.